0: you are listening to you are not broken the only podcast that combines science medicine and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life and i'm your host board certified female urologist dr kelly Kasperson. yay friends i am back with my good friend dr osai who i met IRL last year at the IshWish conference. It seems like so much longer than a year ago. I'm so glad to have you back on the podcast. Like it's taken a year for me to get you on the podcast. I'm sorry and thank you for being here. Okay. First of all,
1: don't apologize. I'm just jazzed that we get to chat about all the things and I miss you and I'm glad to see you virtually at least.
0: So good. So Dr. Osai is a sex positive pelvic health physical therapist, sexuality educator, and counselor. You created this platform, UC Logic, which focuses on improving the sexual intelligence of adults through innovative content and honest discussion that is free of judgment. Boom. Boom. Thank you. Well bam. Well, but so your background's physical therapy and you have this amazing Instagram, TikTok platform that we have to talk (laughs) about. So tell us just give us your like journey of from there to here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So when I started what the reason I went decided to become a physical therapist, was to do pelvic health. And through my journey in grad school and learning about community-based work and creating sustainable community interventions, I had questions about sex and sexual health. And I remember not getting a ton of didactics or clinical rotations focused on that, though it was such a theme that I saw in the pelvic health population across the gender spectrum. And I remember doing my residency and my mentor advised me to do some research on it, to look into it further. And then over the years in my career, so after I finished my residency, I took a few courses and then I decided to do the University of Michigan sexual health certification program that now I'm on on faculty for. And it changed my life and it changed the way that I approach patient care and the way that I communicate with my patients about sex. And then I thought about it, you know, from the general standpoint, after I finished the program, and even beforehand, I'm thinking to myself, you know, a lot of my patients have been experiencing sexual frustration, dissatisfaction, pain, you name it, all based on some pathological issue going on, vulvodynia, erectile dysfunction, pelvic floor hypertonicity. But then a lot of it has to do with how society frames sex like who gets permission to have sex and how it's supposed to be done. And a lot of these myths and misconceptions and lack of information is actually like a huge driver to sexual dysfunction as the other physical causes.
0: Totally. I mean, I'm guessing you see this the same as I see it. Because when you're talking, I'm thinking about like all of my women, the uh, heterosexual women specifically, who come in and they're like, I just need his penis to go inside my vagina. And I'm like, do you want it there? And she's like, well, I don't know. It just kind of makes him happy and he doesn't get grumpy. And like, I saw that over and over and over again. And I'm like, what the hell am I actually, what's my goal here? My goal is just to put something inside of her vagina and she doesn't even know if she wants it. And like, that started like blowing my mind open to be like, I can make you have a great pelvis, but it's not going to make you have great sex.
1: Right. And then, of course, what do they define as a successful sexual encounter and what informs their definition of a successful sexual encounter? Yeah. Is it based on something that is very centered around the penis, around performance-based sex, or is it more experiential? Are we focusing on the sensations, the pleasure, the sensuality, the erotic, which is a whole other discussion? Or it could be part of this discussion, but
0: that, you know, that's the point is, is it's layered. It's very layered. How do you start, you probably do it better than me. I'm like, you know, in the doctor's office, I've got like 10 minutes, right? Then I just like drop the patriarchy bomb in the middle of everything. But I'm like, how do you start cracking open this hardened shell of penis and vagina, heterosexual, a woman's just there to make sure the guy doesn't get grumpy because she married him 20 years ago. Like the layers are so thick and deep. How do you start just like, tip, 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 cracking that open? I think, well,
1: from a practical standpoint, for example, if you're you're a person that has 10, 15 minutes in the clinic, you can't deep dive. (gasps) You simply can't. Sally Foley, she was a professor at University of Michigan, a licensed clinical social worker and brilliant sex therapist. And she created this model called DUPE, where you look at the, you get the description. So what's the problem? What's the onset of the problem? Their understanding of the problem? their success in addressing the problem, and then, of course, their expectations. You can do that in five minutes or less, depending on the patient, and that will give you direction in terms of referral. In regards to that, you can provide the patient with one information, depending on where they're at, depending on the identity they inhabit, what they express to be their goals and expectations, you can put in one truth bomb in there. You can put in one fact based on where the patient is, because I might have a patient that comes in saying, I need to have orgasms, they're ready, they're like, I've read all the books, I've done all the classes, and you can talk differently to them than someone who says, I have pelvic organ prolapse and stress urinary incontinence, and they don't bring up sex until you ask them about sex and they're like, oh yeah, I have pain with sex and I have a lot of issues, I don't wanna have sex because I feel like I smell and it looks weird down there. And so that's a different conversation. And so meeting people where they're at, but first in order for me to meet people where they're at, I as a healthcare provider need to have done my own work. I need to have done my own work in terms of my comfort with sex and sexuality, my comfort with understanding intersectionality, right? How different identities and power structures influence someone's audacity, their experience with sex, how they communicate their concerns, and really, really putting that center in how I speak with my patients. Because sometimes the best intervention is figuring out, okay, we have a language barrier. Let's make this smoother next time. Or getting making sure that access is there. And Not actually, I know they're like, how does that relate to sex? Well, access is the path to sex, right? If someone can consistently access their healthcare provider, or if there's a safety issue in terms of, you know, I never send someone home with a masturbation homework assignment. If they've never done that before, they don't understand what that means. And everyone assumes that everyone masturbates the same way right and so being comfortable to say oh okay you do masturbate how and being able to sit with the answer because the more specific and comfortable i am with these questions the more information i get and the more the more targeted and effective the intervention is
0: love it let's talk let's define if you wouldn't mind can you define intersectionality for people who maybe have never heard that word and discuss how it affects people's sexuality Absolutely. So intersectionality is actually a
1: framework that you want to use to look at the world. So I have identities such as I'm a Black, African-American, first-generation, female, heterosexual, cisgender, but I'm plus size. I have short, natural hair. And depending on how you look at those interventions, and I'm highly educated, those identities, right, some of those identities and how they intersect give me a way to access the world. So for example, going into a healthcare provider's office, because of my identity, I know that there's some biases that comes with my size and my skin color and my gender. And so because of those factors, that actually influences the research for the interventions of the disease disease states that are coming my way. It's going to influence my front desk interaction. It's going to influence my interaction with this clinical medical staff, the doctors, the nurses, the PAs, everyone, right? And so those are going to infl- influence that. It's also going to influence the impact of my words to my provider, and that's, that's the thing that we have to think about when we when we tell people to take an intersectional approach. We wanna not only just assess mental health, diabetes, fear avoidance behavior, but we need to assess stress. We need to assess, assess stress, minority stress. We need to assess oppression factors, right? Oftentimes I remember my patients, I would give, there's a gendered racial microaggression scale that's validated and specific to black women. And so when I had Black women, self-identified Black women come into the office, I would have them fill that out. And they would say to me, no one's ever asked me this before. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, why'd you ask that? And I'm like, well, your experience as a Black woman is definitely different (laughs) than the rest of the world. Minority stress is a real thing, and if we're not monitoring that and managing that alongside with these other interventions, we're missing a big piece of this. We're missing a big piece of what could be influencing our intervention, and we need to tailor it to what's going on in your life. There may be nothing, there may be nothing perceived, or there may be a ton of things perceived that you may not feel comfortable communicating, but the fact that we're measuring it in a validated format tells them, hey, you matter, this matters, and this is something you want to pay attention to. It's not a burden you just want to carry silently.
0: I love it. And intersectionality can also affect not specifically like in a healthcare provider's office but like your view of yourself sexually. Absolutely. Can you ex- can you expand that?
1: Absolutely. So, for example, if you're thinking about someone who is differently abled, so someone who uses a wheelchair for mobility, right? And so when you're thinking about the disability community or the people who are differently abled, oftentimes the medical community society puts them in this box where they're not sexual they almost like take away their sexuality. So they're not provided with the education and information about being sexual in their bodies. So then that minimizes their autonomy, their ability to have the communication, the education to advocate for themselves sexually, to access themselves sexually, to say, hey, You are a sexual being, just because you don't have use of your hands the way that some other person does, you still have the right to pleasure, you still have the right to access that, and that can get internalized. Ableism can get internalized, ageism can get internalized, sexism, racism, all of the isms can get internalized, and color how we look at ourselves as sexual humans, and then it also impacts whether or not we think it's important, whether it's important enough. I know that you know that, <laughs> that when we're thinking about this from a binary, right? If you're looking at men and women, just on a binary standpoint, historically, when I was working in the urology practice back in Houston, the men would be just like, yes, my penis doesn't work. This is what's happening very quickly. Like I'm not seeing these, these guys going five years, six years, 10 years without saying anything. But the women, every time, oh, I've, I've had this for 12 years. Oh, I've had this for 15 years. Oh, I've had this for five years. And these guys are like oh it's i've been in agony for a month i've been in agony for 6 weeks so i can't ha- handle this i'm do whatever i need to do and that tells me there's a societal factor to this
0: totally i mean i think the power differential in heterosexual rela- sexual relationships is huge and nobody ever talks about it but how many times do you hear like the woman does not speak up i have pain and I don't speak up. I don't have pleasure, and I don't speak up. You probably have more insight than me. Do you see that power differential or that like inequality in same-sex couples or in our trans population? Or is this unique to a heterosexual power dynamic?
1: I think the power dynamics are across all relationships, genders, relationship structures, it's there. Because our society is rooted in constructs of white supremacy, patriarchy, it infects everyone, no matter who you are, no matter your sexual orientation. It just plays itself out in different ways. And so you see that power differential can come out from the heterosexual standpoint. You could see this in the same sex couple that from a race standpoint, so there's a lot of research that we know where it says that if you are lighter skinned, whiter, or if you have more Eurocentric beauty traits, you have more autonomy and power in that sexual relationship than your darker-skinned person. And that's sexual racism, there is a power dynamic there, right? So that the person who's darker or the person of color is less likely to be able to say, hey, I would like to use a condom. And those are real dynamics that occur. So to succinctly answer your question too late, but <laughs> I would say, yeah, I see this across all dynamics.
0: Is this kind of the same or different to, like, sexual stereotypes, right? Kind of the same thing. Like, because I see you as blah, 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 that must mean you really love sex or you are really passive in bed. Like, we have these sexual stereotypes for groups of people, too. Yes,
1: we have sexual stereotypes. We have sexual racism. The sexual racism is where you are going to discriminate. So you're going to actively discriminate against someone because of their skin color, because they're Asian, because they're Black, because they're P- Asian-Pacific Islander, because they are indigenous, an Indigenous person, whatever reason. Whereas the sexual stereotyping is those shortcuts or the assumptions that you have about that person from a sexual standpoint. So if you're thinking about the fiery Latina stereotype, right? The assumption that because you're with a lat- Latin woman or Latinx person or female body person <laughs> you're going to have this like fireworks type of sexy time. Just like if you're saying like the Asian fetish, you are saying, oh, I'm going to have someone who's exceedingly obedient, right? <laughs> right? It's going to do whatever I want. And that's a stereotype. And the racism is going to be imparted by the fact that you're, discriminating against them because of that skin color. So it's there, but it's all deeply ingrained because no one's gonna walk, just like when you're thinking about racism and it's just general terms, no one's walking around thinking, oh, I'm going to commit this racist (laughs) macro-aggression. No one thinks that. But if we're not taught that from the beginning, if we're not taught about these sexual scripts that we create in our minds early on, and if we don't include that and talk about that in our children and our young kids, as they get older and build on that education, the stuff will just persist.
0: Totally. I think so much of your advocacy work is empowering people to like own their body, to take up their space. Can you tell us a little bit about how Bourbon Tales got invented and like how you <laughs> use that to... Because I see so much of like self-love, self-empowerment, take up your space as kind of an antidote to this society's like labeling and stereotyping and, you know, patriarchy, racism, all that stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, Bourbon Tales started when I actually very early on with UC Logic. It was one of my primary interventions where I just thought people were having a hard time talking about sex. No one was talking about it in a way that was comfortable. And I thought, well, you know, I have this degree, I have this level of expertise, but and that when I started, like not many people were talking about sex as much as they are now. Like this has exploded in the past four years. And I said, well, I love bourbon. Let me just sit on my stoop or sit on my stairs. Let me just drink and answer people's questions about sexy time and make it and normalize it and make it accessible and make it informed and I think that's where that began and it's been bananas banana cakes experience where people just love bourbon tales and I get a ton of questions every week and I have to select which ones I want to use and what I think is you know what would be helpful to the community
0: I absolutely love it. I mean, your charisma on camera and like your your use of, but I mean, to me, I'm like, it's so good. Like your use of color, your use, uh, you know, put on the, your blue glasses or whatever, your use of music, your use of dancing, your use of like very just casual of like, let's talk about the weather forecast. And instead it's talking about like how to know if ethical non-monogamy is right for you, you know, and, like your ability to Normalize the conversation like you're just talking about picking out a new throw pillow, you know, in, in a very like eye popping, like I'm just like, I just want to watch these. They're so good. Oh,
1: thank you. I, it actually, you know, some depending on the question, sometimes it takes no time to record it. And sometimes it takes forever because I don't want to be too, too long winded. But at the same time, I also don't want to leave people to think that this question, this very complicated question really truly only has a 30 second answer. It
0: really does not. Yeah. That's a shortcoming of Instagram. That's a shortcoming of social media. Yeah.
1: Uh, Is that, you know, so I, I always stress, I sometimes stress out with specific questions because I'm just thinking to myself, well, am I, (laughs) I don't want people to think this is it. So I always try to like add a little more to it.
0: Do you have one in mind where you're like, this is way complicated, but I tried to I tried to make a clip for it?
1: Yeah, I think there was one. The um, topic we were talking about: this young woman, young Asian woman, was worried that her partner was fetishizing her without her consent, without her involvement, and that was such a layered, <laughs> such a layered issue. And any of the pregnancy and sex, postpartum and sex questions. Those are, I think, some of the toughest because it's even though it's such a large group, it, there's such huge variety and why we see sexual dysfunction and some women and why we, some women and, and birthing people and why we, don't you know see it in others and and there's layers such as postpartum depression and psychosis there's (laughs) there's pre-existing physical conditions there's the partner relationship there's
0: so many factors that can influence that sexual experience you know during that postpartum period totally so you wrote the sexy swagger a guide to reimagining your sex life what do you want when people are like sexy swagger i don't know if that's for me What do you want people to know or enjoy from thinking about sex in like a more kind of friendly, empowered way?
1: Yeah, what I want people to know about sex is that it's not a monolith. It's not something that only is penetration, penis and vagina. There's no gold medal sexual act. Penetration is not the gold medal sexual act. It is really what's going to Make you feel satisfied is a highly individualized experience. There's not one way to access an orgasm. There's not one way to access pleasure. In that, what really people need to understand is where they're coming from. What lens do they have? What blinders do they have on there in terms of how they're looking at sex? For me, you know, some of the things that I grew up with is you know I'm first generation American Nigerian. I grew up very Catholic. And my mother is a scientist. So she was a Catholic scientist, you can imagine, but she was very pro- sex positive, but also gave us the, you know, sex is good, but wait for marriage. Masturbation is healthy and it shouldn't be painful, but wait for marriage. So my sister and I, re- I tell people this all the time, We're, we just grew up confused. We're like, should we? <laughs> shouldn't we? Uh, and so I think that understanding what lens you have coming in. Because I thought when I started talking to my patients and treating patients before I did all of this work in education, I thought I was good. I'm like, no, I'm sex positive. I know what I'm talking about. I don't have bias when it comes to sex. Of course I had bias. We all do. And bias isn't a bad thing. I think when bias is dangerous is if we don't acknowledge it, we don't recognize it, we don't know where it's coming from. That's when it's a problem. And you can have that bias in any way. You can have religious bias, sexual bias, racial bias, you know, able bias. And I think allowing for you to understand who you are and then where you're coming from and then being able to open up the world to sex and what the opportunities are there. You can have a beautiful sexual experience by engaging with your partner and not even touching them. You could be commanding them and just like say, okay, I'm a visual person and I'm going to tell them to undress and get in the bathtub and listen to music and be in their pleasure. And that can be erotic and powerful and sensual and delicious. It doesn't have to always look the same. It doesn't always have to look like in my reference is pretty woman, you know, where she's on the piano and Richard Gere is like kissing her body all over. Right.
0: And I'm like, it doesn't always look like that.
1: I mean, I, that piano seemed really hard and cold, by the way, you
0: know? <laughs> Yeah, and and the janitor could have just walked in. <laughs> right, but maybe that's what they like. But maybe they want, they wanted a little possible voyeurism.
1: Yes, they wanted, to, they wanted something a little spice, a little danger. And I'm like, okay, I see you, I respect that. Like, if that's something you both mutually want, hey, all the power to you.
0: Firmtech, a new sexual wellness company, has created two uniquely effective cock ring products the performance ring and the tech ring. The tech ring was voted the most innovative sex toy of the year, and the performance ring was runner-up for best male sex toy. These rings will take cock rings out of the closet and into the mainstream. What distinguishes the performance ring is its patented hook and loop design and comfortable elasticity. No need to have an erection first. No need to interrupt sex play. No need to take the ring off after 30 minutes. Firm Tech's rings can be worn safely and comfortably for hours. The tech ring has the same benefits as the performance ring. Additionally, they embedded sensors into this ring. These sensors show the duration and firmness of erections, and most importantly, they count the number of nocturnal erections that correlate with vascular health, as nocturnal erections decrease with diabetes, hypertension, and venous leak syndrome. The tech ring has an easy-to-use and informative app connected by Bluetooth to your phone or computer. The tech ring tracks the vital signs of a man's most vital organ. What do you care about more? How many steps you take or the health status of your penis? Now you can get smarter and harder. Check out myfirmtech.com. I think about my people who are like, penis and vagina for 40 years and now th- now there's a tragic problem because either the penis doesn't work or the vagina doesn't work or you know some, something doesn't work so like the blinders have been on so much but it's almost like because I'm like you know why can't we just see that there are different ways it's almost like there's a comfort in doing what we've always done there's like a comfort in being like, yeah, but that's the real way. That's what I want. Like, that's what I want. And you're like, well, I know, but that's not working for you guys anymore. It's it's possible there could be a different way. What do you see as far as like getting people to be like, oh, I've just been doing this like very narrow thing and maybe it's been wonderful, but like, it's just not working for me anymore.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I think it starts with a willingness and an openness to look at sex not just as trying something different or or calling it like we're gonna spice it up. It's more about doing, I call it a spring cleaning or a sexual reassessment. Dr. Al Vernacchio has this beautiful TED talk where he talks about sex needs a new metaphor. And he said that instead of the baseball metaphor, first base, second base, third base, you know, home run, right? He's saying we should think of it as pizza what do you like? What type of crust do you like? Well, I like thin crusts. And you're like, oh, I like a hand toss pan crust. All right. Oh, maybe can we do something in between like a pretzel crust? Yeah. Great. Right. And so you see that there's a whole different engagement there. I want some cheese. Great. Do you want sauce? You, uh, do, I want pepperoni. No, I don't want pork. Cool, cool. We can do a margarita pizza. So, you know, you know what I mean? And so it should be this mutual discussion and oftentimes there's that pressure where people say, well, I don't really know what I like outside of what is conventional. I don't know what I like. Well, you can do something like pleasure mapping where you touch your partner all throughout their body and you both give each other feedback. You can kind of say, ooh, I really loved it when you gave me firm pressure on my shoulders. And usually I like light pressure, but I really like this firm pressure. Well, maybe we can incorporate this as part of foreplay maybe we can incorporate this as part of our sensual experience and so starting to build on understanding what what your body responds to exploring that outside of penetration thinking of penetration as one of the things in the salad bar not the only thing to order it's like okay today i may want sensual massage and a couple's bath and tomorrow I may want oral sex right or Friday I may want penetration but it's all delicious it's all satisfying it's all good and that's what you want to start to build in your relationship now whether you're in your 70s or in your 20s is starting to build that erotic intelligence that sexual intelligence understanding the difference between what is sexual which is the acts of sex what is sensual so touch taste vision what you're hearing what you're smelling and then the erotic right and the erotic is accessing that deep access to your power that deep joy the erotic is the antidote to oppression
0: I love that. I love it. I I think just so much of what you do and what you share on social media is the role of confidence in one's sexuality. To me, I'm like, you're just a very naturally confident person. She has it and that person doesn't have it versus like, it's something that can be developed. It's something that can be cultivated. How do you think about confidence and the role of incorporating confidence into having sex that's worth desiring?
1: Oh, gosh. I mean, that's that's a whole other podcast.
0: <laughs> like it's a whole new podcast, Kelly. Oh, man. Sorry. I
1: mean, confidence is is a... It's work, right? It takes work. And I'm not always... My confidence is not static. So good for people to know. So I want to give people that right there. I'm a sex counselor, educator, professor, physical therapist, speaker, all the things. But my confidence is not static. There are days where I'm like, I do not know why I'm doing this out loud. I need to just go and hide in my closet with my bourbon and HDTV, right? But <laughs> that doesn't happen often, but it just <laughs> <does happen. laughs> and, you often. Know, and I think the process is, is, confidence is the process. For me, confidence is the process. I trust the process. You know, I, I trust my gut. I think the thing that I've learned over the years is being authentic to who I am. I do not conform to what I think people want from me. And as someone who is a recovering people pleaser, that's a, a test. So as my confidence has grown, as my understanding has grown, cause it's not even just about the knowledge acquisition. It's not just the acquisition of skills. It's about really looking at yourself, taking what you've built, what you've grown and putting that into practice in the day-to-day things. And when you put that into practice, You start to recognize, you know, whether you're dating or you're in a long-term relationship, you can recognize in your partner, okay, you can start to communicate and say, you know what, babe, like, here's what I'm craving right now. Here's what I'm craving. You don't even necessarily have to say, I want to do whips and chains and handcuffs. (laughs) You can just say, I'm just craving like a lot of closeness right now. Because of this stage in life that I'm in, I just really want close, slow touch, And then when you have that successful sexual encounter where you get that, it actually builds your confidence and motivation for the next encounter. And it builds your curiosity and it changes your brain chemistry. I mean, it's such a rich discussion because confidence can be, can really just be in terms of having sexual acts that worked out well, where you feel satisfied and fulfilled. And keyword, I'm saying satisfied. I'm not saying have an orgasm because not all orgasms are pleasant. And so what is going to make you feel satisfied? And really, for me, centering satisfaction has what helped to build my confidence. And that translated to confidence sexually. That translated to confidence as you see, as me, as myself. But that's been decades in the making, but intentional.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, this ties in my next question on the confidence thing of you do a swagger tip 103, for those who want to find it on your website, but it's take up more space. And I think that kind of ties into the confidence of like knowing like the space that you take up on earth is your space to take up that is yours. Can you talk a little bit more about taking up space and how that can help sexually or with confidence or wherever you want to go with that one?
1: Absolutely. You know, I remember that swagger tip. And I was going through it at the time. And for me, I was feeling, we've, I think we've all gone through places, times in our life where we didn't feel like we could take up space. That we felt that anytime we were loud and we did take up space, we were. it wasn't well received or it, it didn't have an outcome that we had hoped. But I found that even though I didn't always have the outcome that I hoped, I still felt this internal satisfaction, this ease in myself. And every time, the more that I took up space, it wasn't about getting that external validation. It was about validating what is true to me. What is true to me, my value, what I think is right in the moment, whether that be professionally, personally, sexually. And it translates to the fact that what people need to think about here, when they're thinking about sex, especially when you're partnered, is that your sexual self, your sexual self has to be developed first. A lot of times when people are partnered, they kind of mesh with their partner's sexual drive and sexual interests and their erotic space. And like, they can have that. That is beautiful, but you have yours. And then you both will create one together with mutual input. And so that's, for me, when you're taking up space in the bedroom is being able to say, you know, this is what I like. And you also have the right to erotic privacy. You can keep that to yourself and let that marinate and percolate till you feel ready to share that. If your partner is a safe person to share that with. And when I say safe, I don't mean like feeling in a physically abusive space, but sometimes we might be in a different space from a sexual education and knowledge place than our partner. And what you feel comfortable communicating and talking about, they may not. And so sometimes that's the rub, <laughs> is figuring out how do we communicate when there's a knowledge deficit Mm -hmm. and a a communication skill deficit.
0: Do you have tips for that? I mean, I would think like sharing, you know, the classic ones of like sharing how you feel, I statements, not saying you need to do this, the simple basic stuff. Do you have anything to add? Because I think that's something that I've never touched on, but I, I see it a lot now that you bring it up is like, My partner doesn't want to talk about sex. I tried and they either get some stonewalling or they're like, I don't want to deal with that. But like try their inability to communicate is affecting their sex life.
1: Yes, absolutely. And so I always tell people to start with themselves first. That's the thing that is the most reliable that you have full control over is practice on communicating with yourself. Do your pleasure map on yourself. Have a self-touch, masturbation practice, whatever you want to call it. Have a mindful shower. Right. Where you let that you do your business, right? You clean your pitch, you clean all the wobbly bits, whatever. And then at the last five minutes, you can just like feel that rain, or not the rain, but feel that water on your skin and your hair. You could use a different soap. You could use a loofah, you can switch to a sponge, whatever, and have those moments with yourself and almost direct your own scene. And then it's so clear what you need. And I think, like you said, what I always tell people is starting with like, this is what I want to feel. And this is how I've done it. Can I show you? Because sometimes showing is better than talking. Some people do better with showing than talking. Some people do better with talking. Some people don't like either. So then it could simply be about, hey, in the act, you could say, I would like to try this. Do you mind laying on your side here? I'm going to reposition you here. Or you could do the sandwich thing where you kind of say, it feels so good when you do this and you show them how. And they may not acknowledge that they didn't do it before, but you're like, but you're giving them the saying. You're giving it to them and saying, especially if you know how your partner learns. Because you also have to know how does your partner receive information and you have to play with that dynamic. So if they need to feel like they were the ones that was driving this conversation, you can navigate it that way. But if they're not that way, because everyone has different levels of sensitivities. And so really understanding that and putting that first. But I'd say the first step, step is really getting a strong idea of what feels good to you with your own hand, with your own body. And I also challenge people this. When you're thinking about that, remember the senses. Even if you're saying, I don't want to change my masturbation practice. Cool. Well, maybe why don't you put a blindfold on while you're with your masturbation, how does that experience, does that change your experience? What if you use different temperatures? Like what if you used an ice cube? What if you had noise canceling headphones on? (laughs) What if you were sipping on something very, that you like to sip on, something spicy, something sweet, something sour, something bitter? How would that feel to you? Those are very, and I want you all to think about that because those are very, like that's highly sensual and it can kind of build and, Give you time to build up that sensual energy, and sometimes it, the words can flow out once you're in that
0: state. I love it. So good. And thank you for clarifying the difference between like sexuality, sensuality, and erotic. I, I think that's so useful. I have two more questions for the for the end of this podcast. Embracing pleasure is the antidote to oppression. Mm-hmm. Wow. Like <laughs> like, yes. Where did that come from? It's amazing. The Erotic as Power
1: is written by Audre Lorde, and I highly, highly, highly recommend that everyone read Audre Lorde's, all of her works, poems, essays, books about accessing the erotic as power. Because I think what people think about the erotic is they think about it as being the pornographic, right? That just purely sexual, but the erotic is really about you being in spaces where you can feel your joy. You can feel your power. You don't have to be hiding who you are. You can be your full self. Like there are moments where I had this client and we were talking about, they didn't understand what I was talking about. And I was like, you had this favorite food that you like to have on certain nights. Tell me about that. And they got so excited. Their body changed. Their eyes lit up. All the heaviness went away, and and they were describing how it tasted on their tongue, the spiciness, the sweetness, the grease. And I said that that, and they were like, oh, and I'm like, yes. You see how you got lost. In that, like you see how you turned off your thinking brain and your primal brain was turned on and it, you were just feeling and experiencing and it's almost like you were floating. That's what we want to access. It doesn't always have to be something that's like sexy, sexy. Mm-hmm. It can simply be those moments where you are not thinking, you're feeling, you're experiencing and you feel that energy and you feel like you you could just like go out and fight crime. Yeah, it's an aliveness. It's an aliveness. And the concept of oppression, no matter who you are, no matter what identity you have, the aliveness, accessing that power, you're not oppressed anymore.
0: You're free. You're free to access whatever you want to access. Yeah, like part of the oppressor's power is taking away your aliveness. Yes. And minimizing it and boxing it and it's stereotyping it.
1: Ah, saying it's bad, saying it's othered, the politics, the sexual politics, the respectability politics, all of those things are tools of oppression.
0: Yeah. Where do you think, I'm I'm segueing a bit, I'm thinking about like the current climate and taking away women's birthing people and women's ability to be in charge of preventing pregnancies or deciding when to have a bigger family Many all people are very distraught about this lack of power that they see the power is being taken away. What's your hope or what's your words of advice for these people? Or maybe I'm asking too much for, to get a piece of wisdom from you on this, but just to all the people who feel like the power is being taken away right now, what do we do?
1: I'm going to say something radical. Here's what I'm going to have people do is look at who changed history. Look at Black women. Look at people of color. Look at trans people of color and what they did with the power that they had. And look at your identity. And (laughs) like, look, I'm just gonna be plain spoken. If you're a cisgender white man, hetero white man, you have literally all the power. Society was created for you in your likeness. Use your power. Everyone has power. Everyone has access. We just have to be willing to use our voices. Inaction in the face of need is the root of all the problems that we have in the society. And being outspoken, the way you educate your children, if you have kids, the way you're talking about power dynamics with your children. If they can watch TikTok all day, you can talk about power dynamics, (laughs) right? (laughs) I think that's a safe thing to discuss. Mm -hmm. And that, because there's always hope when people make the
0: choice to use their power. There's always hope. There's always hope. Absolutely. And then sitting around saying we don't have power, sitting around in that almost victim mentality is not what makes us feel alive, is not what brings out our energy and our creative power.
1: Right. I think the thing is, you know, I, I tell people I vote for the greater good. I vote for the greater good. I vote so people have access. I vote for, for the safety of people who do not have my access. Mm-hmm. I don't vote for the people more powerful than me. I vote for the people who have less
0: power than me. 100%. I love that. Okay, final question. What's your definition of a good lover? Oh, man.
1: <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> Lord have mercy.
0: okay. So, you know what? Wow. And this can be individual, you, or it can be like the world, the good lovers of the world. Like, take it as personal or as, as broad as you want to take it. Listen, listen, I, you know, I'm, I'm percolating. So
1: I think the definition of a good lover is a person that understands their sexual power and energy and is curious about yours and wants to create a sexual encounter that is delicious, fulfilling, safe, informed, consensual and open, no judgment. There's nothing sexier than someone who's just like authentically themselves on the dance floor, in the bedroom, at work where you're just like, you know, that's a sexy human. They do that thing, they do that thing. And so that for me, I think the best lever is that, authentically yourself, comfortable in your skin, comfortable in a, that in the fact that you're a sexual being, and curious about your sexual experience, about their partner's sexual experience. That's
0: totally. hugely that's huge because because you don't have to be partnered, people. Mm-mm. Like being partnered is a choice. Yep. And like you can you can, how you show up matters.
1: How you show up matters absolutely. Also, remember that there's flexibility. We need to have flexibility in what we like and what feels good. What felt good to me last week may not feel good to me this week.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for spending the hour with us. I have all of the links to all of your things in the show notes, of course. But any final like, what do you want to let people know? Or where do you want them to find you? The, the stage is yours.
1: Well, you can go to my website. You can book a sex counseling session with me at www.uclogic.com, Y O U S E E Logic. You can find me at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok at UC Logic. And yeah, just remember that sex is what you make of it, it doesn't have to look like your neighbor, or your friend. It just needs to be, sex needs to be an experience that you feel satisfied and honored and respected and protected.
0: Oh, best definition ever. I think so many people are looking for like the 10 step plan to doing it right. And it's like the you know, the way you say it of like it's yours. We're not gonna tell you how you get there, but we'll we got some rope Some tips. Yeah, we yeah, totally. <laughs> need some
1: tips, but you know, we want you to feel creative and explore what works for you.
0: I love it. Thanks so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Hey, friends, if you love what I'm doing on this podcast and love who I'm interviewing, I want to encourage you to join the private membership where you get a front seat pass with all of my interviews and you can even ask them questions. In addition, there's going to be group coaching with me and my upcoming guest coach to take this work, to go deeper, to live your best sex and love life. Join today at www.kellycaspersonmd.com slash membership. I'll see you on the inside.